Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 105, Other Hermetic Worlds, the Asclepius and Kore Cosmu. We've introduced the great tractate which opens the Corpus Hermeticum, the Poimandres, which contains, among other things, a cosmogony, a story of how the world begins, and an anthropology, which, in the context of philosophy and religion, means an account of human beings, and by extension, how human beings are supposed to live, what they're made for. In this episode, we're going to discuss two more major antique hermetica, which also provide both of these things. This will give us a picture of the vast differences which could exist in this literature, because both the Kore Cosmu and the Asclepius, for it is they, give very different accounts of how the world begins, and different anthropologies as well. But this discussion might also facilitate our homing in on some central hermetic theories, or at least central hermetic themes. But speaking of differences, what about the rest of the Corpus Hermeticum, aside from the Poimandres? Is everything in this corpus of texts a psychedelic visionary account detailing the origins of the universe from a ground of consciousness? Sadly, no. If we look at the tractate-by-tractate summary of Festugier in the Révélation Trismegiste Volume 2, we get a nice summary of the range of materials to be found in the corpus. Now, we can't go into this in detail here in the podcast because we don't have space for it, but see our special episode where we kind of investigate the Corpus Hermeticum in a bit more detail, aside from the first tractate and the last tractate. Now, standing out in the Corpus Hermeticum are two tractates which we are going to single out for special attention. One is the Asclepius, which we'll be discussing this episode, and the other especially interesting text is Corpus Hermeticum 13, entitled Secret Discourse of Hermes Trismegistus to His Son Tat Upon a Mountain, concerning rebirth and the duty of silence. The name is already sounding good, and this tractate delivers. In it, we get perhaps the best insight into hermetic spiritual practice of all the texts of the Corpus Hermeticum, including a lot of discussion about the immortalization of the body of the hermetist and how this is to be achieved. Corpus Hermeticum 13 is also a goldmine of the esoteric, as the title suggests. This is a secret logos, and it discusses Tat's obligation to keep the teachings secret himself. So the work is framed esoterically, and its subject matter also includes the role of esotericism on the hermetic path. However, this text is such a precious window onto hermetic spirituality that we want to discuss it in tandem with another work, The Discourse of the Eighth and the Ninth, which survives only in the Coptic Nag Hammadi Codex Six. So as artificial as this arrangement is, we're going to be returning to spiritual practice and silence in the next episode of the podcast, concentrating on those two texts. For this episode, let's turn to the Kore Cosmu and the Asclepius. The Asclepius survives in a lot of partial versions from antiquity. The familiar Latin version, which sort of rides at the end of modern editions of the Corpus Hermeticum, is actually only one version which we know circulated in antiquity. Um, and it's actually not Latin, it's mostly Latin, because a few technical terms are actually left in the Greek in the text, as we shall see. We know our version to be a translation of a lost Greek text entitled Teleos Logos, Perfect Discourse, 
and um, we have a couple fragments of that Greek original. We also have a Coptic translation of part of the Teleos Logos from the very same Nag Hammadi Codex 6, where we find the discourse on the 8th and the 9th. But this translation is fragmentary, and it's so different from the Latin text that we have that it actually took scholars a long time to even realize it was from the same text. Now, the Asclepius was transmitted right through the Latin Middle Ages in Latin, but there's a curious silence from late antiquity until the 12th century. So St. Augustine, early in the 5th century, quotes the Asclepius in his On the City of God, using it along with some demonological theory taken from Apuleius's On the Daimonion of Socrates in a reinterpreted Christian form to show that all traditional religious practices, sites, and statues are in fact to be shunned as works of the devil, heaving with demons. But from Augustine onward, we have silence. Seemingly, nobody was working with this Latin text until the 12th century, when we start to see references to it again. I don't think this can be right, so we need to find the evidence that it isn't. Listeners, get to work. Now let's turn to what's in our Latin text. This work is very long for a Hermetic tractate, so long that we're going to have to just give some idea of narrative framework and then kind of pull out some important themes for discussion. Unlike the Core Cosmu, where the narrative itself is ridiculously fascinating and complicated, the Asclepius is really a linked set of theoretical discourses on various subjects by Hermes to a group of disciples, so it kind of admits of a less narrative-driven approach than either the Poimandres or the Core Cosmo. However, be sure to hit up the original, as we're going to be skipping over lots of fascinating material in what follows. First of all, with the Asclepius, we have a curious adscription at the head of the text. It says, Asclepius ipse prosole mihist, that is, this Asclepius is as the sun to me. Odd. I'm not quite sure what to make of that, and it's just one of these funny things that shows up in manuscripts. Make of it what you will. Now, let's discuss the framing of the dialogue. It starts with Hermes Trismegistus speaking with Asclepius. Then Hermes says, Asclepius, go get Tat, which Asclepius does. He goes out and gets Tat. And he says, Hermes, can I get Hamon as well? So this is a form of the god Amon, who's become a kind of disciple of Hermes. And Hermes says, yeah, go get Hamon, but don't get anyone else. These logoi, I'm going to impart to you, are not for the ears of just anyone. Uh, so Asclepius gets Hamon, and we are made aware that what we are about to read is esoteric knowledge. And this is reinforced because the four of them are then sitting within this adutum, this um, forbidden part of an Egyptian temple, and they're silent for some time. So again, the theme of silence reinforcing esotericism, as we saw with the Poimandres as well. Then Hermes begins to speak, or rather, Cupido, that is, the Greek eros, the passionate love, begins to speak through the mouth of Hermes. So we get Hermes as a kind of mouthpiece or channeler for the god of love here. He's inspired by the god of love. So we're probably looking at the Greek idea of enthusiasmos, a divinely inspired discourse, as the model of what is going on. We don't hear anything more about Eros, Cupido, in this, it's, but what we're about to hear, we are told, is the voice of Hermes speaking the words of Eros. And going to the end of the text, to get the, the other bookend of this narrative framing, the text ends when all the discourses are finished, and the four sages walk out of the temple, and then they offer up a prayer of thanksgiving, and Asclepius 
asks Tat, should we maybe burn some incense? And Herbie says, no, Asclepius, what are you talking about? The highest god needs nothing because he is everything. So no material sacrifice is appropriate to him. Come on, what are you thinking? And this is a theme, of course, found in other Hermetica as well. Like God only likes prayer or only likes noetic sacrifice, the sacrifice of logos. That's the only thing that's appropriate to the highest god. You don't burn incense. You don't kill animals. You know, keep all that stuff. Then Hermes delivers a hymn to the highest god, praising him for his many gifts of consciousness, notably. And then they go to enjoy a vegetarian banquet together. End of text. So we have a framing as esoteric knowledge, and we also have at the end a kind of framing as perhaps reflecting the actual behavior of hermetists. At least this is one reading of it, right? They hang out in temples, and then they go and have a communal meal, which is vegetarian. In the body of the Asclepius, Hermes discusses a number of matters divided into fairly distinct discourses, which have kind of an intro and an outro. But the themes interlock and overlap quite a bit. And there's some really interesting overarching themes that run through the text. So first of all, let's look at the rather quick, simple story of cosmogony given in the Asclepius. We have no demiurge. There's no narrative of a fall or of any kind of a hiccup in the process of creation. The whole process is seamless, and humans play a very positive role in it. Let's read from section 8 in Copenhaver's translation. I'm cutting a few bits out, but this is the basic creation story. Quote, when the master and shaper of all things, whom rightly we call God, made a God next after himself who can be seen and sensed, then having made this God as his first production and second after himself, it seemed beautiful to him since it was entirely full of the goodness of everything. And he loved it as the progeny of his own divinity. Then so great and good was he that he wanted there to be another to admire the one he had made from himself. And straightway he made mankind imitator of his reason and attentiveness. God's will is itself perfect achievement, since willing and achievement are complete for him at one and the same moment of time. After he had made mankind usiodes, this is a Greek word in the text, and it means something like essence formed. The meaning here is that these, the humans are still naked souls. They don't have bodies yet. They are usiodes. After he had made mankind usiodes, and noticed that he could not take care of everything unless he was covered over with a material wrapping, God covered him with a bodily dwelling and commanded that all humans be like this, mingling and combining the two natures into one in their just proportions. Thus God shapes mankind from the nature of soul and of body, from the eternal and the mortal, in other words, so that the living being so shaped can prove adequate to both its beginnings wondering at heavenly beings and worshiping them, tending earthly beings and governing them. End of quote. So there you go. God, world, humans. Then the humans were given bodies because they needed them to get on with things and sort of become um, park rangers on planet Earth and take care of everything. As we shall see, this account of creation is completely at odds with that given in the Kore Cosmo. Note that God doesn't need to speak to create, as he did in the Poimandres and shall do again in the Korikosmu. He just wills things, and the things are done then and there. Now, there is a very consistent monism, or unifying approach at least, throughout this text. So Hermes begins, in fact, by saying to Asclepius, If you apply your noose, see intelligens videris, your entire mind will be entirely filled with all good things. 
if, that is, there are many good things and not a single good in which all goods exist. He then goes on to say that there's no contradiction between these two ideas. There is a single good with internal multiplicity, basically. As it says in section three, there's one matter, one soul, one God. So this approach to the unity of reality is a leitmotif in the Asclepius. In fact, the universe is all contained within God explicitly. It, in fact, serves in some sense as God's body with limbs and so on. And everything within the, the cosmos, inside of God, is connected with everything else. When God made the visible second God, a.k.a. the cosmos, or maybe the stars, but I think it's the whole cosmos that's meant here, including the earth, he made it inside himself. Now, there's a lot of really interesting teaching on the concept of space in the Asclepius, which we don't have to time to get into here. But the clear implication is that God made the cosmos inside himself because there was nowhere else to make it. Now, this leads to a particular theme or teaching of interest to scholars of Western esotericism. So everything in reality in the cosmos descends vertically from noetic archetypes. I'm stating this in a very Platonist way. We don't really have a strong Platonist metaphysics laid out in the text, but certain statements such as at the beginning of section four concerning, quote, all things that depend from above and the affirmation of the noetic intelligibilis in Latin, the noetic realm as immaterial in section 34. These little kind of fragments here and there make it very clear that what we're dealing with is a sort of a theory of forms. You have a immaterial archetypal world, which seemingly is God because there's nowhere else for it to be in the metaphysics. And from those immaterial realities in that realm, you get the things here in the realm of becoming. And check this out. The forms are called genera in the Latin of the Asclepius. These are eternal, and the individuals are species, and these are, of course, transitory. But they're arranged in ontological series, each of which has an usiarchos, an essence ruler. Uh, the translator just left this term in Greek. So there's no antique Latin equivalent to usiarchos. In, in medieval times, they would have coined something like essentiae dominus or something like that. But in, in this period, you just can't say that in Latin. So at the top of each series or chain, you have a divine being. Light, for example, is the usiarchos of the sun. So light is the primordial noetic principle. The sun is the visible God. That's how it works. Now, this is really interesting to me because it is really, really reminiscent of the theory of Serai or chains found in the work of Proclus. And we don't have anything like it, as far as I'm aware, between the Hermetic Asclepius and Proclus. So it's an interesting precursor of this theory of ontological chains with sort of gods standing at the heads of them. Another major recurring theme in the Asclepius is the human being's double nature, which we already saw in the Poimandres, but here it's a really, really good thing. It puts mankind in a privileged position, set up both as custodian of the earth and able to ascend to God. In the Asclepius, we get a lot of encomia of mankind. And maybe it's worth quoting one from section six, because this way of thinking seems, it really stands out in late antiquity. It kind of puts you in what a piece of work is man, optimistic territory, more familiar from, well, the Renaissance and even the Enlightenment. Quote, because of this Asclepius, a human being is a great wonder. 
a living thing to be worshipped and honored, for he changes his nature into a god's, as if he were a god. He knows the daimonic kind inasmuch as he recognizes that he originates among them. He despises the part of him that is human nature, having put his trust in the divinity of his other part. How much happier is the blend of human nature? Conjoined to the gods by a kindred divinity, he despises inwardly that part of in which he is earthly. All others he draws close to him in a bond of, of affection, recognizing his relation to them by heaven's disposition. He looks up to heaven. He has been put in the happier place of middle status so that he might cherish those beneath him and be cherished by those above him. He cultivates the earth. He swiftly mixes into the elements. He plums the depths of the sea in the keenness of his mind. Everything is permitted him. Heaven itself seems not too high, for he measures it in his clever thinking as if it were nearby. No misty air dims the concentration of his thought. No thick earth obstructs his work. No abysmal deep of water blocks his lofty view. He is everything, and he is everywhere. End of quote. So, the prospects for the human being are very good. We shall come back to this later because there are also problems with um, being a human being and plumbing the secrets of nature with your divine mind. But let's carry on with this theme for the moment. Matter is also good in the Asclepius for the most part. It's never made clear whether matter pre-existed the creation of the cosmos or not. Uh, but I think it does. I think it's just there when God gets to work. But at any rate, it's there to be worked on by the Creator, and in general, in the Asclepius, it's seen as a very positive thing, um, because it allows for the beautiful divine world to be manifested, although it is also described as intractable, and that's what accounts for the cosmos not being perfect. So there you go, problem of evil solved. Matters just like that. That's why stuff isn't exactly as perfect here as it is in the higher realm. There's really no evil at all in the Asclepius except insofar as humans are seduced by their material side into ignoring the need for religio, which in our context is likely to be a Latin translation of eusebea, the pious virtue touted in many a Greek hermetic text. There is a scheme of reincarnations with the usual bestial descent for those who do particularly badly in life and totally ignore religio, but for those who have religio, you can escape the cycle of reincarnations and presumably go back to the heavens, though this isn't really stated. However, there is a bit of badness in the Asclepius, which I just alluded to, and we need to discuss it. It's related to the other theme we need to cover, the famous God-making passages in the Asclepius. So first, let's talk about the God-making. Not only is mankind set in a privileged position as custodian of the earth and aspirant to the divine, he can also make gods. Just like God, though on a more humble level, quote, for it is mankind who fashions temple gods who are content to be near to humans, end of quote. So what is going on here? Asclepius asks, quote, are you talking about statues, Trismegistus? Statues, Asclepius, yes. See how little trust you have. I mean statues ensouled and conscious, filled with spirit and doing great deeds. Statues that foreknow the future and predict it by lots, by prophecy, by dreams, and by many other means. Statues that make people ill and cure them, bringing them pain and pleasure as each deserves. End of quote. So we are in the territory of Telestike, the art of ensouling statues 
which we discussed in the episode on the Chaldean oracles and theurgy. Now note that in Egypt, this is mainstream religion. The, the temple cultic statues are insold, and the priests regularly feed them with the kind of food that uh, insold statues thrive upon to make sure that the, the soul in the statue doesn't escape back up to heaven but stays on earth where it can be consulted in oracular consultations, for example, as has just been discussed. And later in the Asclepius, we learn that these statues are specially constructed and need to be cultivated by humans with just such cultivation. Quote, And the quality of these gods who are considered earthly, what sort of thing is it, Trismegistus? It comes from a mixture of plants, stones, and spices, Asclepius, that have in them a natural power of divinity. And this is why those gods are entertained with constant sacrifices, with hymns, praises, and sweet sounds in tune with heaven's harmony, so that the heavenly ingredient enticed into the idol by constant communication with heaven may gladly endure its long stay among humankind. Thus does man fashion his gods. End of quote. Now, these god-making passages were the bits that, as you can imagine, caused St. Augustine to lose his cool. This is proof to him, if proof were needed, that pagan temples are basically literally full of demons. But in an older religious mindset, an Egyptian religious mindset, these ensouled statues are living links with the world of the gods here on earth. And they're kept here, well, they're sort of installed here and then kept here through the arts of what many scholars would call magic, but let's say the appropriate ritual actions. There is certainly a lot in these passages which resonates with what we know of theurgy as practiced by Iamblichus, and so this passage will be a crucial piece of comparative data when we come to discuss the theurgic art in the context of the divine Iamblichus. Further down the line, as many listeners will know, the God-making passages in this text would again cause a splash when they were read in the Renaissance by Platonists who were kind of thinking in terms of a legitimate holy practice of magic. But that is a story for another time. Backing up, though, to the first God-making passage that we just quoted, this passage actually serves as a lead-in to a fascinating prophecy, and this is where things get really dark in the Asclepius. Evil, or at least a sense of decay and loss, come into the narrative in a big way here. A time is coming, says Trismegistus, speaking as a prophet, when Egypt will be under the sway of the barbarians. Now remember, Hermes is a sage from the distant past prophesying the future. Let's hear what he has to say. O Egypt, Egypt, of your reverent deeds, only stories will survive, and they will be incredible to your children. Only words cut in stone will survive to tell your faithful works, and the Scythian or Indian or some such neighbor barbarian will dwell in Egypt. For divinity goes back to heaven, and all the people will die deserted, as Egypt will be widowed and deserted by God and human. End of quote. The prophecy goes on from there, foretelling a godless age, wherein Egypt, the temple of the whole world, will become a desolate tomb, where atheism will reign, the old age of the world, as Hermes puts it. Finally, God will step in and renew the world. So we have a creation story in the Asclepius, but we also have an end of days scenario. Scholars have pointed to the Stoic doctrine of ekpyrosis here as a possible source, the idea that the universe goes through periodic uh, conflagrations and recreations. 
But we also know that already in Second Temple Judaism, uh, the idea that the world has a time limit and it's going to be remade bright and shiny again by God has been around for centuries. And of course, the Christians took this on board with a vengeance, and there's plenty of Christians around in Roman Egypt, so the, uh, the author of the Asclepius will certainly know about Christian ideas. So we really can't say anything about a source beyond the fact that the idea of the earth having a sell-by date was definitely in the air, and the general approach to this idea was that once the allotted time was up, God was going to step in and start the whole experiment over again. We don't find this so much in um, school philosophy, but we find it a lot in late antique religious movements. There's at least a hint of millenarianism in this text, in other words. Because remember, the Egyptian readers of this text are living in the times being prophesied by Hermes. So they're seeing all this stuff happening. The Scythians or Indians or some such neighbor barbarian referred to in the text, I think, can be read as an obvious reference to the Roman occupying power. It's a tactfully indirect to avoid the uh, complications which occur when you criticize the Romans directly in the form of a millenarian prophecy. Remember what happened to the Second Temple. We can also adduce here one earlier bit of rather negative judgment on Hermes's part. At sections 12 to 14, Hermes was talking about philosophy, and he contrasted true philosophy, which is basically the same thing as religio, eusebea, with false philosophy, which is essentially everything we would call philosophy, or even science for that matter, arithmetic and geometry, for example. These are examples of humans meddling where they shouldn't. So that earlier critique of what was to the readers of this text, right, the current Greco-Roman scientific culture, I think is meant to be read as part and parcel of this, this is what has gone wrong narrative in this prophetic passage. So to a reader of this text in Greco-Roman Egypt, they can just kind of look out their window and see all the things happening if they choose to read them that way. You know, humans meddling and, and mapping the stars with their impious astronomy, the, um, the traditional temple cult of Egypt gradually declining and kind of going broke. All this stuff is happening. And of course, the, uh, the fact that the Asclepius is part of precisely the kind of new religious movement which is replacing the old temple cult doesn't seem to be a problem here. But we can say that at least one hermetic writer was uh, taking a kind of millenarian approach to things, like things are getting bad and the crisis is coming. We don't see this a lot in Hermetica. We do see it in Corpus Hermeticum three. I think there is a, a slight occasional move toward a millenarian approach, which isn't uh, general in the Hermetica, and we see it here in the Asclepius. So this curiously optimistic text, the Asclepius, with its wonderful living interconnected world, contains a prophecy of extremely dire warning right in the middle. And then it gets all optimistic again. Make of that what you will. But uh, I highly recommend reading this work because it's absolutely fascinating and uh, quite unique from antiquity. Now then, moving to the Core Cosmo. This is Stobias Hermetica number 23. This is actually our longest Greek hermetic text that survives from antiquity. Uh, the Asclepius would be longer, but it's in Latin. And it's completely different, again, from either the Poimandres or the Asclepius. Now remember, this isn't in the Corpus Medicum now. This is the, the longest text cited by Stobias, the 5th century anthologist, saying, well, and this is what Hermes says about this. So, our text has in common with the Asclepius a serious Egyptian flavor. Actually, it's more Egyptian 
more obviously Egyptian than the Asclepius. And here there really is no doubt that we're dealing with Egyptian religious materials. With the Poimandres, all the personnel are familiar enough to a Greek, right? You've, once you've explained that the weird word poimandres is just referring to a noose, okay, you have noose, pneuma, soul, the classical elements, the demiurge, the star gods, it's all in the vocabulary familiar from Middle Platonism. But here in the Kore Cosmo, we really are in Greco-Egyptian territory. There's a ton of material in this work, which I think your average Greek outside of Egypt would have really not had a clue about. It's the only hermetic text which survives that actually uses the word magia, magic, and it uses it in a positive sense. Its creation myth draws heavily on alchemical traditions. It contains repeated esoteric themes. It is, in short, a doozy of a text. And because it's so narratologically interesting, we're just kind of going to go through it step by step a bit, um, which we haven't done with the Asclepius, because we'd be here all day if we did. The title Kore Cosmu either means maiden of the cosmos or pupil of the cosmos, as in the pupil of your eye, right? So this might be a reference to Isis herself, for it is she. Or it could be a reference to Egypt, the black land, or both or neither. At any rate, if the Kore refers to a young woman or girl, it can't really be Isis because she is notoriously a mother. And so she would be a gune rather than a Kore. But we do have a whole lot of Isis in this piece. So one assumes that the title somehow refers to Isis, and maybe it is as the pupil we should read here. Litwine, his translation that we shall be citing in this episode, goes for pupil at any rate. So Isis is the narratrix speaking to her son Horus. When last we met these two, they were being read esoterically by Plutarch back in episode 68. Now we find them a bit closer to their native Egyptian habitat, though still in Greek. The narration starts in Medias Res with Isis giving Horus a drink of ambrosia and sort of saying, and now I'll continue my logos. Um, what, what she was saying before is lost if she was actually saying anything. We either are missing the beginning of the work or it just begins very abruptly. In sections one to three, Isis tells Horus about the beginning of reality. Some gods who seem to be the star gods, they're described as stable and eternal and so on. They're also described as being mysteria, so they're somehow hidden or occult. They're mysteries. Anyhow, these gods are there, but they're not stars yet in the sense of visible stars. Nevertheless, they exist. And their presence somehow leads to some kind of panic or freakout in the realm below them. It's all very unclear. This is um, definitely otherworld territory that's being described. Because it wouldn't seem that there are any people yet to be freaking out. So who is doing the freaking is rather obscure. So we have these stable gods, we have confusion below these gods. Then the architect, Technites, of all, reveals himself to the gods, and they love him and seek to know him. Incidentally, the same architect is later called the Demiurge in this text. So in this text, the highest god is also the creator god. There is no second Demiurge figure. So here's a first taste of a cosmological story, and it's a very unique one in the Hermetic literature. Now Hermes comes into Isis's narration, but this is some kind of cosmic Hermes. So what was just described, the meeting of the gods with the highest god, this was accomplished not by some mortal, but by, quote, a soul having sympathy with the heavenly mysteries, end of quote. Now remember, heavenly mysteries are the gods themselves or the planets, maybe. 
So it becomes clear that this is Hermes himself, because Tat was his successor, then Asclepius Imuthes, and then others who investigated an accurate faith concerning the contemplation of heaven. So then Hermes inscribes his wisdom on some sacred books, hides them, and reascends to heaven. Now, okay, what exactly has happened at this stage in the narrative is unclear, and I'm going to refrain from theorizing. We have a state of reality where the gods are unaware of their father, the architect, but then they become aware of him. They seemingly are star gods, but they're not yet manifest as stars. They're somehow hidden. And Hermes, meanwhile, is up there with them. He's descended from the stellar region to somewhere, we assume to Earth, although how did the Earth even get there? We're not told. He founds a lineage of sages who are focused on astral science. He writes his sacred hidden books, and then he reascends back to the heavenly region. Okay, so Isis then kind of restarts the narrative after this prologue and gives us a proper creation story. So there was a long time when reality was hidden. Everything that existed was in some kind of state of inaction, like it hadn't been switched on yet. Then the star gods appear in the narrative, and they went to the god of all, the king, and they announced that this inactivity is there. There's like, you know, king, uh, nothing's happening in reality. Now, maybe this is meant to be the same they became aware of the first god narrative from earlier, told in a different way. But anyway, god agrees that, you know, something has to be done, so he creates nature, Fusis, by speaking. And lo, a beautiful goddess is born. So we should note here that creation through speaking, which we of course know from the Abrahamic theme found in Genesis and Christianity and Islam, is also prominent in Egyptian cosmological myth, as in the Memphite theology. So this is probably Egyptian material, though we can't rule out influence from, you know, kind of Judeo-Christian milieu. Once nature is born, uh, stuff starts to happen. The elements appear or are separated out. Nature gets together with someone called Ponos, which means toil or hard graft, who somehow appeared on the scene as a male-gendered abstract deity or principle, and they have a child, Heurisis, discovery or invention. And Heurisis becomes lord over all things. Obviously, this is a subsidiary lordship because the Hermetica always agree that there's one overarching god. So as with many of the texts known as Gnostic, we see personified abstract principles playing a major role in the cosmological mythography here. Then, and this is where it gets alchemical, gentle listener, so hold on to your hats. The highest god takes pneuma and fire and other mysterious substances which are left unnamed, and the text tells us, I'm not telling you what they are, and he mixes all of this up into an essence of soul, which is called psychosis. So yes, this is psychosis, actually, but it's not in the modern meaning, clearly. This Greek word means something like the basic stuff from which souls are made. It's like the soul prima materia. Note how materialist this viewpoint is, right? For Plato, soul, as he argues again and again in different dialogues, it's immaterial. It's incorporeal, I should say. Even though in the Timaeus, he does have the demiurge slicing it up like a celestial tailor, no reader of Plato really thought that he meant that there was actually kind of soul uh, stuff, at least that survives from antiquity. Here, though, soul is an alchemical brew made from fire and pneuma and other stuff. It's stuff. Scholars agree that this passage is 
indeed a reference to alchemical theory and practice, and terminology, and adepts of the hermetic art will probably find it significant. It certainly makes use of Stoic physical terminology, and the materialistic approach is also very typical of Stoicism, but the degree to which this implies anything like an engagement with philosophical Stoicism is very much open to question. Uh, we'll have the same question when we get to Zosimus of Panopolis in the 4th century, who is an alchemist who also brings in pneuma into the physical theory, but is he reading the Stoics? Nah. Anyway, the first god mixes and mixes the psychosis, and in a process reminiscent of petroleum refining, he gets 60 different grades of soul. Now, he takes these grades of soul and he sets them as astral workers stationed at the cosmic axis. So these guys are now turning the cosmos, presumably. An interesting take on the, the world soul from the Timaeus, maybe, or at least an interesting echo of the world soul from the Timaeus. Then he takes water and earth, which are the heavier of the elements, right? And uses them to make the signs of the zodiac. Then, like Plato's Demiurge, he hands over the remaining details of creation to this astral framework that he's kind of set in motion, and he withdraws. So the sky is run by a huge host of souls of different grades, and it also has a denser part, the zodiacal signs, made of heavier elements. But it's all a big divine mechanism ready to do more creation and run things here in the cosmos. So Horace asks, what did they create? Isis tells him, they made different animals from different elements. Um, so, you know, birds from the air, fish from the water, that sort of thing. But these creating souls were audacious in some way. They overset the bounds in some way. And God punishes them by making them into physical humans. So, human beings, just like in the other Hermetica we've looked at, are thus part divine and part material. But here, they are fallen cosmic creators. We created the cosmos, but we are then sort of imprisoned within our creation because we got too big for our hypercosmic soul boots. The different planets or planetary powers then announce the qualities that they're going to grant to the newly minted humans. Um, this is also an idea familiar from other Hermetica, including the Poimandres. And Hermes, incidentally, is here one of the planets. So, in Greek, at this stage, late antiquity, the planets have come to have set names in Greek. And they're the same ones we use nowadays. In English, we use the, the Roman equivalents, but it's the same gods. So, in earlier times, the Greeks would disagree. They would call Jupiter Phaethon, the, the shining one, the sparkling one, but then they would also call, you know, say, the planet of Zeus, or just Zeus. At this stage, it's become standardized. So, you just say Zeus, Hermes, etc. So there's no difference in Greek between Hermes the guy and Hermes the planet, whom we call Mercury. They're both just Hermes. So in the Kore Cosmu, Hermes does indeed fill both roles. He's seemingly the planet or maybe like the planetary intelligence. There isn't really a, a specification of what kind of taxonomy is involved. He could be a daimon. He could, you know, there's all kinds of possibilities here. But he is also the sage who wrote the sacred books. Or maybe there's multiple Hermeses going on. As we saw in episode 100, it's very easy for the Hermes is to proliferate in this kind of text. So these planets are all announcing the gifts they're going to give to the humans. These are double-edged gifts, right? They're both good and bad aspects of the human condition. And God gives Hermes the task of making their bodies from the leftover mixture. So our bodies actually come from the dregs of the same primordial alchemical brew that our souls were made from. Hermes does this and he intentionally adds extra water 
to the mixture, elemental water. And that explains why our bodies are as feeble as they are and why they kind of decay and, and flow into old age and decrepitude. They're too watery. Then from sections 33 to 37, we have a long lament of the incarnated souls at their separation from their original status as celestial entities. God hears this lament at section 38 and announces metempsychosis. So humans are going to have many incarnations, which may lead them downward into the bodies of animals if they don't do it right. But if they do act rightly, it opens up a door to moving upward again and becoming heavenly souls again. So all is not lost. God then turns into a noose and withdraws again. So holy cow, God wasn't a noose to begin with, but he is now. I'm just going to leave that on the table. It's too heavy to even get into in this already long episode. Now, an entity called Blame arises, who is a giant humanoid god figure, and he is chatting with Hermes about the humans. He warns that the humans are once again going to grow too big for their boots. And here we have, as in the Asclepius, a kind of polemic against too much human science, which we might compare with the story of the Nephilim in One Enoch, um, and we can contrast with other Hermetica, like Corpus Hermeticum 10, 25, where human searching for knowledge is absolutely valorized as like one of the best things humans can possibly do. So here, science is bad. Hermes agrees that this will be a problem, so he decrees a number of things which are going to ostensibly put the problem right. The Aether, this high elemental realm, is going to become invisible, and this is going to mean that the stars will be visible from Earth from then on, it's totally unclear how this solves the problem of human overreach, but that's what he says. But he also says, I'm going to appoint Adrasteia, who is a, a Greek goddess of ineluctable punishment for transgression. She's also known as Nemesis in many sources. He's going to appoint Nemesis, Adrasteia, and then he creates fate, Hemarmene. So that is Hermes kind of putting the brakes on embodied humanity on Earth and how much they can achieve. End of first creation story. Yowza, that is some crazy stuff. I get lost even just reading it because there's so much going on and so many weird overlapping layers and weird rewinds and then going forward again from an earlier point. And it's very, very fascinating. So much in this text is familiar from the Poimandres and other Hermetic texts, and yet everything is unfamiliar in some way. In particular, we should note here that Hermes is definitely not just a human sage in the Chore Cosmo. He is an astral god figure who takes a detailed role in the creation of the cosmic order here on Earth. But things are still not completed. Uh, the story continues. At section 50, God, once again getting involved in things, he calls an assembly of the gods. More order is needed in the cosmos. And to me, this just reads like yet another hermetic creation story that's somehow been grafted into this larger text, but I'll let the, the listener and the reader decide on that. So he says, I myself will make a start. Quote, he spoke, and immediately there came to be an ordered division in the still dark amalgam. So amalgam is a blend of metals. Here we have alchemy again, obviously. But seemingly also we're in the primordial chaos of prime matter again. But we've already seen the stars being created and even made visible and humans created. So how we're back in the primordial darkness, I don't know. So the heaven appears, the earth congeals and becomes solid, and then God takes in his hands... The text specifies the kind of hands fit for a deity, so these are not ordinary hands. He takes into his hands everything and flings it out into reality, 
all the things that exist in the cosmos he kind of throws out there. Now, just a note here, we have seen God withdraw twice already after handing over responsibility for the ongoing creation to lesser gods, but he keeps reappearing in the narrative. So as with the Poimandres, I suspect some serious layering of different accounts went on with this text at some stage, because usually once God has withdrawn to become the Deus Absconditus, familiar from other Hermetic tractates, he doesn't come to you, you have to go to him, that God. Once this has happened, narrator logically, it's very jarring to have him once again convening divine councils and doing stuff. So I smell a stitching together of different narrative sources here. At any rate, we now get a fascinating account of human origins. Finally, it seems like humans in this narrative keep getting created, but then we find out they're not quite done yet, um, which I again take to be a sign of narrative splicing, but I could be wrong. First of all, humans are in a state of uh, primitive barbarism on the earth. They, they're existing in constant strife. But the reason for this is very interesting. They are in revolt against incarnation. This is actually a very profound commentary on why humans are so violent, if you stop to think about it. It's very interesting. So all this horrible bloodshed is going on, and the four elements themselves appeal to God against this. They Basically, the world itself cries out against the horrible deeds being perpetrated on her surface, and help comes. So now Horus asks, how did the earth obtain the effluence of God? So effluence, this is an outflowing, an aporoia in Greek, a divine efflux. So we are looking at an emanationist understanding of God's action in the lower levels of reality. Um, Horus just knows that this must be how the humans ended up getting saved. So he says, and so how did this efflux happen? Isis's answer is superb. And it brings us unexpectedly into the thick of Egyptian sacred history. What God did, she said, is a secret because humans aren't allowed to know how gods are born. But I can tell you that Isis and Osiris were sent. In fact, let's read from Litwa's translation. This is Isis speaking. I will say only this, the sole ruling God, the world maker and craftsman of all things, bestowed for a short time your supremely great father Osiris and the supremely great goddess Isis as helpers in a world in need of all things. They filled life with the goods of life. They put a stop to savagery and mutual killing. They consecrated precincts and sacrifices to the ancestral gods. They bestowed laws, food, and protection on mortals. End of quote. But this passage continues. In short, without quoting the whole passage, Isis and Osiris came down to set up human life on a civilized basis, which, as is perhaps unsurprising at this point, is human life on an Egyptian basis. So they teach things like building temple precincts, and they train up priests, and they even teach how to mummify dead people. So they are the culture heroes of Egyptian society, right? Now, this passage takes the form of what is known as an Isis eratology, a traditional kind of list of all the great things about Isis and all the benefits she gives to humanity. We mentioned these eratologies in our special episode on Apuleius's golden ass. So this is a form of Isis eratology, but it inserted into it are a few odd little references to Hermes as well. So Isis quotes Hermes saying, quote, they, so this is Isis and Osiris. This is Hermes prophesying about Isis and Osiris. They will come to know and discern the secrets of my writings, says Hermes, even if they withhold some of them. 
Yet those that extend benefits to mortals, they will inscribe on steles and obelisks. End of quote. So Isis and Osiris basically transmit the uh, non-esoteric wisdom of Hermes to mankind. They keep a certain bit secret, of course, because this is esoteric material after all. In short, quote, they, Isis and Osiris, alone, after learning from Hermes the secrets of divine legislation, became initiators and legislators of the arts, sciences, and all occupations. So note that now the arts and sciences seem to be okay. They seem to be divine benefits given by the gods, while earlier they were signs of human overreach. Again, there seems to be a contradiction here. Quoting again, they learned from Hermes how lower things were arranged by the creator to correspond with the things above, and they set up on earth the sacred procedures vertically aligned with the mysteries in heaven. They, recognizing the corruption of bodies, ingeniously devised a perfect remedy in the persons of all of their prophets. Their purpose was that no future prophet who raised his hands to the gods would ever be ignorant of what exists, that philosophy and magic would nourish the soul, and that medicine would preserve the body when sick. All these things, my child, Osiris and I performed. So Isis has now entered the narrative. She's in the first person saying, this is what I did with your father, young Horus. Note that Isis and Osiris have set up a lineage of prophets. Now these are, I think, referring to Egyptian temple priests. And they perform philosophy and magic to nourish the soul. So my feeling here is that not only is Isis inserting herself into the narrative, but the author who I think probably has a stake in the um, authority of Egyptian temple priests is inserting himself into the uh, narrative as well, saying, and note that we temple priests are error-free uh, heirs of the wisdom of Osiris and Isis, who got it, of course, from Hermes. Now, that basically brings us to the end of our text. For what happened next, you can see episode 68 of the podcast, where we discuss Plutarch's telling of the Isis and Osiris myth. Um, Isis and Osiris are king and queen of Egypt, and they have lots of adventures and sort of end up becoming gods, having lived on Earth for a while. So there we have it, the Kore Cosmu. To me, a very baffling and confusing, but very rich and fascinating text. Um, we haven't done justice to it or to the Asclepius, really, but... Already, this is a long episode, and you can see that there's a lot of material in these texts. We're trying to at least cover what we think of as totally essential for the history of Western esotericism and Western esoteric ideas. And that makes three hermetic worlds covered so far in the podcast. Three very different worlds, it seems to me, but all fascinating and all with the intriguing parallels and overlaps that make us want to look for a hermetic tradition at the heart of all of it, um, even if there isn't one. So we're going to resist temptation and simply invite you, the listener, to imitate the wisdom of Hermes inscribed upon the ancient stele, which Isis and Osiris kept to themselves, and stay esoteric. <laughs>